Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Uh, Matthew's going to come and do a reading and also bring a short reflection on the reading for us. Hey guys, so um, I'm going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 9 verses 2 to 7. Um, So Isaiah spoke a a prophetic message to Israel um, about 700 years, 700 years before Christ. And so I don't know about you guys, I'm only 28 and I don't remember anything 28 years ago. So Isaiah spoke a word to Israel 700 years uh, before Christ's birth. Israel were spiritually dead. They were under rule uh, with, with evil king after evil king after evil king. Things weren't looking good. It was, it was, a, it was really just a, a sad and a desperate, desperate time in, in Israel's history. And so in, in, uh, in Isaiah, there, there's all these prophetic judgments, judgment after judgment, but there is hints of hope. And there's a few hints of hope in Isaiah. And I'm going to read from one of them now. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. Uh, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Now, would you hear these words? For unto us a child is born. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. There's four names here given to this Savior, and I just want to share a sentence about each of them. The first one in in, in verse 7, or verse 6, is wonderful counselor. The child that is born would be a messiah. A supernatural wonder. He would show this part of his character through, through powerful works and through miracles. Uh, the wonderful counselor would, would possess perfect wisdom. The wonderful, the wonderful counselor would reveal God's salvation plan. And this looks like Jesus. Mighty God. He, w- he would also be fully God as well as fully man. The fullness of God would dwell in him. The fullness of God would dwell in this Messiah. And this looks like Jesus. Everlasting Father, this child, this, this Messiah, this Savior um, would not only show the way to the Father, but he himself would be a perfect reflection of the Father. And again, this looks like Jesus. And the final one, Prince of Peace. The coming of the Messiah would, would bring people to a place of peace with God through himself. Uh, setting free, setting them free, setting the people, setting Israel, setting all of Mankind free from the, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. And again, this looks like Jesus. Amen. Thanks. Uh, we're going to have our next reading, which is from Christiana, and it's going to be uh, from the book of Micah. 
and the book of Luke. So we have two readings, one from the Old Testament and one for the New, and Christiana is going to read these. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. That's Micah 5, 2 through 4. And then in Luke 2, 1 to 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. What I find so interesting about this is that uh, God's a really good storyteller. I mean, why choose Bethlehem? Like, it doesn't make a lot of sense, actually. It wasn't convenient. Mary was very pregnant. <laughs> I've been very pregnant twice, and I really wouldn't have wanted to make this journey. It's about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That's a four to five day trek. Really pregnant, walking or riding on a donkey or whatever. Um, so it didn't, like location-wise, it didn't make sense if he was going to pick Mary. Why Bethlehem? <laughs> it wasn't prestigious either. It wasn't impressive. It was basically known for one thing. There was kind of one thing going for it. It's famous for being the hometown of David. Uh, David's famous for being that little shepherd boy, you know, the one who kills Goliath, the big giant. Um, a lot of people think of David as the man after God's own heart. That's kind of a famous quote about David. He was like God in some way. And eventually he was King David. He was crowned king. And Israel thinks of that as a very golden memory, sort of the good days when David was king. Um, so Bethlehem was his hometown. That's the city of David, the town of David. And then 500 years pass from David to Jesus, and a new king comes to Bethlehem. A new king is born there. Jesus was like David in a lot of ways, right? He also grew up in a very humble family. <laughs> Not a lot of money there. Um, remember David being a shepherd? Jesus calls himself the true good shepherd. And like David, um, this king would eventually conquer a really big enemy, <laughs> but bigger than a giant, bigger than Goliath, bigger than the Philistines or any of the other enemies Israel ever had, our greatest enemy, sin and death. And Jesus wasn't really a, ma a man after God's own heart because he was God's heart. He was God's heart in a man, the best version of that story. So God gave his people, Israel, this heroic underdog way back when, King David. He turned out to be a pretty good king, but he was, you know, he was like us. He messed up. <laughs> he wasn't perfect, and he led Israel to victory over and over again, but eventually they were conquered over and over again. But the king that comes to Bethlehem this time, 
he's never going to be conquered. He always wins. So God tells a really good story. <laughs> but his story's true. Thanks. We're now going to have our third and final reading. Grace is going to come and read uh, from Matthew uh, chapter 2. And uh, the band can come and grab a seat at this stage. So Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Thanks, Grace. Uh, this reading is, uh, you've got it on your, your chair, or there's some over there if you want. We're just going to make a few uh, reflections on it. Uh, we just had uh, that little video that had four perspectives on Christmas. You have uh, Scrooge, who recognizes the darkness but has, uh, loses the will to hope. You have the shopper, uh, who's spending their way to happiness, but ending in debt. You have Santa, with lots of Christmas cheer and ho-ho-ho, but is he real? And then the fourth perspective was, is there a Bible story that helps us understand the real meaning of this baby? Well, Matthew is one of the writers in the Bible who tells us about the birth of Jesus from, one of the, uh, from his perspective. And he gives us four different views. Did you notice the four views in the passage as Grace read it? View number one, the Magi. These strange people, pagan people from the east, who had come to worship Israel king, Israel's king. They adored him. They adored the king. King Herod, a paranoid, power-hungry king who feels threatened by the arrival of a new ruler. He wants to kill the king. Number two, the Jewish leaders who knew their Old Testament prophecy. They knew their Bibles back to front, but they couldn't join the dots between what the Bible said and the person Jesus in front of them. So they are blind to the king. The kingdom is hidden from them. And then there's Matthew himself, perspective number four. And he wants to tell us that the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of the Old Testament for God's people, how God was going to bring a king, a ruler, a shepherd from the line of David and Abraham who would bring blessing to all the nations. So you have the Magi that want to worship. You have King Herod who wants to kill you have the Jewish leaders who are blind, who cannot see the king. And you have Matthew himself who says, let me give you sight. Let me help you understand this kingdom, that it might be revealed to you and not hidden. Because the surprise of the story 
Matthew is writing primarily to Jewish readers in his day, is that the Jewish people reject Jesus, but the nations worship Israel's king. And that was a surprise. Matthew announces that the true king is here, not in power and might, but in hiddenness, humility, vulnerability. He tries to join the dots between what the Bible says and the person of Jesus being, uh, who is being born, uh, so we can see him clearly. So let's have a look at these four perspectives. And this Christmas, think, what would it mean for us to see Jesus more clearly? First of all, there's the Magi, these fascinating people. Firstly, they're not kings. That came in the third century as a tradition. Secondly, there's almost certainly more than three of them. They have three gifts, sure, but they traveled 800 miles, probably took 40 days traveling 20 miles a day. They probably were not three people stranded going from Babylonia or Persia all the way to Jerusalem. They had attendants and guards, and there may have been dozens of them. So they're not kings. There probably wasn't three of them. And they are not with the shepherds at the manger. Did you notice in verse 11, it says, on coming to the house, they're not at a manger. This is probably two years later because Herod then orders the execution of all the babies under two, boys under two years old. So Jesus is probably, if you know Faye Anderson, about Faye Anderson, Anderson's age, one and a half to two years old. So when Matthew retells the story of Jesus' birth, there's no stable, there's no shepherds, it's just Bethlehem in Joseph's day, in Herod's day, and Mary and Joseph have settled in a house. So if they're not kings... If there's certainly, if, if there are almost certainly more than three of them, and they're not with the shepherds at the manger, who are they? Good question. For centuries, the Magi had been a tribe of priests from Babylonia and Persia who had enjoyed special powers to interpret dreams as recorded in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. They were advisors to the king. But through the centuries, up to New Testament times, Magi became a term that covered a wide variety of people people that interpreted dreams, people that were into astrology, people that read books that they thought contained mysterious references to the future. They were fascinated by wisdom and the stars and magic. We might liken their fascination to the fascination some people have today around characters like Mystic Meg or palm, palm readers. You know, tarot cards, horoscopes, Ouija boards, people like that. People who know there's something supernatural, but they're not quite sure, but they're dabbling. They saw stars, and they, read in, they, they interpreted them. And they see this star that rises, and there is no end of speculation about what this star is, but we really have no idea. A Kepler, that famous scientist, wondered if it was a, a conjugation of the planets Jupiter and Saturn, or he wondered if it was a supernova. Later, people came to think of it as Halley's Comet. We don't know what this star was. Whatever it was, the ancient people typically were into stars. And so when the heavenly bodies, which are all very stable and secure... Um, when the heavenly bottles, which were all stable and secure, were interrupted, uh, there's something dramatic and unusual would be happening. Like the like God or one of the gods was breaking into the world, and it was a sign of some sort. So the Magi were looking at this star going, what does it mean? Are the gods, is God breaking into our world? Now, as Mafi read, the Jewish people had been in exile in Babylonia and Persia. And there's a very famous prophecy in the Old Testament, which maybe these, pay, these Eastern people, men, these Eastern men, these amazing men, whoever they are, had read, because it had something to do with the star, and these guys are fascinated about the stars. In Numbers 24, a book in the Old Testament, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter, a ruler, will rise out of Israel. Maybe they knew that, and they saw the star, and they went, we don't know. 
Whatever their reason for going, they were obviously interested in what this star meant. They didn't go to Bethlehem where the star ended up. Because they must have thought, my guess is, if God, if the God of Israel is breaking into this world, he's going to be doing it in his capital city. So they go to Jerusalem. And they go to Herod, uh, which is eight miles away from uh, Bethlehem. It's a bit longer than the walk, you know, from Bray to Greystones. Now, what Matthew tells us is extraordinary. He tells us that these ancient Eastern men who are fascinated by stars bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They bring gold and spices, spices from their lands that you wouldn't have got in Israel. Matthew describes it there, if you see it in verse 11, on coming to the house and they saw the child with his mother Mary, they bowed down and worshipped. Then they opened their treasures. These were their treasures. This is something that they valued. And it says they fell down and worshipped. With their treasures, they paid homage to this 18-month-old, two-year-old baby. It's astonishing. Their faith, their insight, their wholehearted search all the way from their country, adoring worship of Israel's God. These, pagan, these wealthy pagan astrologers pay homage to the, the, the king of Israel, God's son. That's one perspective. Why did they come? What was so fascinating? The second one is Herod. King Herod, or Herod I, or Herod the Great, was born 73 BC and was half Jewish and half Idumean, which means he wasn't from the line of David, which means he couldn't actually ever be the true king of Israel. But he was put in charge by the Roman Senate in 40 BC, and by 30 uh, BC, he had completely uh, sort of uh, established Jerusalem and brought peace and prosperity to Jerusalem by uh, getting rid of any opposing foes. So the, the Romans loved him, and kind of some of the Jews loved him. Uh, he was wealthy, politically gifted, intensely loyal, and excellent administrator. And he may, he's very clever. He managed to remain in the good graces of successive Roman emperors. His famine relief was super. His building projects were admired by his foes. If you go to the Holy Lands today, you're fed up of seeing the name Herod everywhere. He built most of it that is around today. Cities, palaces, fortresses, not just in Jerusalem, but the surrounding areas, Jericho, Antioch, Nicopolis, Athens. You see his name everywhere in the Middle East today when you go to, the, to explore. But most importantly, in 20 BC, he rebuilt and repaired fully the Jewish temple that had fallen into disrepair. So in his eyes, and in the eyes of many others, he was sort of the Roman puppet king they'd left in charge, but he had brought peace to Jerusalem, and he had rebuilt the temple where they worshipped. So if anyone was the king of the Jews then, you would have said Herod. And he even married into the royal line, taking one of his wives, Mariamne, a princess from the Jewish Hasmian house. If there was a king in Jerusalem, a king of the Jews, everyone would have thought it was Herod. But he was not only a brilliant ruler, a collaborator with the Romans, and he somehow won enough favor with the Jewish people. Like many great leaders, he was power hungry. He loved power and inflicted heavy taxes on the people. And so many Jews did resent him. And in the last years, he suffered from an illness, compounded by his paranoia, which, turned, which meant he turned to cruelty. And in fits of rage, he had lots of his close associates killed, including, Josephus tells us, the Jewish historian, two of his sons at least, and his wife, Mariamne. So he's, he's tyrannical. He, he has to be in control. He's built his kingdom, and he's going to establish it. So you can understand his reaction now when the Magi turn up saying, hey, we've heard about this king. And we, we want to go and worship him. But he feels threatened in that 
moment. He'd build himself a little kingdom. He's, in, he's got the Romans on his side. He's got enough of the Jews on his side. He doesn't want anyone to destroy his little kingdom. He felt threatened. Hence why he was willing to kill his wife and his sons. It was no bother for him to say, right, I want to kill Jesus. And if I can't kill Jesus, I'm going to kill all the baby boys under two years old. Herod's way had always been might is right. He'd use the sword whenever he needed to establish his kingdom. And if this baby was a rival king, he'd use the sword again. Let's pause. Matthew's a great gospel writer. What's he doing? He's showing us right at the start, every time Jesus arrives, whether into a life or a place, he always divides. These pagan people worship him. King Herod wants to kill him. There are strong reactions. And the people that want to kill him or the people that want to reject him, they're not willing to give up their little kingdoms to embrace his. So we've seen the Magi. We've seen Herod. What about the Jewish leaders? How did they react? Well, Herod gathers the scribes and the Pharisees to say, hey, I've heard there's a Messiah going to be born, the king of the Jews. Well, you know your Old Testament. They're the religious leaders. Where was, he, where was he to be born? They did know their Bibles very well, so they say, oh, well, the prophet Micah says, in Bethlehem in Judah. That's from David's town. That's where the king, the shepherd, the ruler is going to come from. So the Jewish religious leaders knew their Bibles. They knew their doctrine, and they knew the story of God. And Psalm, Psalm 2 or Daniel chapter 2 says there's going to be a king who's going to come. He's going to establish Jerusalem, bring peace and prosperity. He's going to beat evil. He's going to establish an eternal kingdom, and he's going to uh, usher in a new world. And they were expecting in their mind a victorious king, a, a military king, a, a political king, maybe like Herod, but better, and certainly from the line of David. And so even though they knew their Bibles and were very, very religious, they were blind to Jesus. You know, it's often the way. You can know your Bible very well and be blind to Jesus. And as Matthew takes us through the rest of his gospel, this is a repeated theme. The religious leaders know it all. They can quote their Bibles, but they can't see Jesus. The pagans, the Gentiles, the outsiders, like these magi, they're the ones that see. Jesus' kingdom is and always has been upside down. Israel's king is worshipped by the nations, but rejected by Israel. And think of the reaction of these leaders. Like Herod wanted to kill the Magi falling down and worshipping. What do they do? What's their reaction? Apathy. We don't hear of them joining the eight-mile journey, the six-mile journey to Bethlehem. We don't hear of them joining Herod in trying to kill Jesus. They probably just got busy carried on studying their Bibles and doing their religious activities and going to the temple, but they're too busy or they're too stuck or they're too distracted to have any actual reaction, strong or negative, to Jesus. And they don't stop to think, should I take the journey of investigation? Should I leave Jerusalem and just check if Micah, what Micah said might be happening? Should I just check? They cannot be bothered to take the journey of investigation. And, you know, I know the people I know in Dublin a number of them are lost in wonder and awe for Jesus. They're Jesus followers. They have a strong reaction. And they would go, I'm trying to give Jesus my treasures, the thing that are most important to me. I'm trying to give up my little kingdom to enter his big kingdom. There's a strong reaction of worship, but it's only a very small number in Dublin like that today. And actually, I think there's only a very small number in Dublin today who have a very settled negative reaction to Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. There's a few Often they're rejecting the church, not Christ. But there's a few. Most people in Dublin today are like the Jewish religious leaders. I cannot be bothered to take the journey of investigation. 
to see if I can join the dots between what the Bible says and the historical Jesus, and can they add up? We're too blind, we're too apathetic, we don't want to investigate it. We have a sneaking suspicion if we did, well, it could have consequences. And we just assume, no, it can't be, it can't be. It just can't, it's just too fantastic, it can't be true. Can it, can it be true? I, I don't want to check it out, I'm not going to check it out. That's what most people do, from my experience. For the Jewish religious leaders, they assumed it couldn't be true because the true king of Israel would come in power and glory, not hiddenness and humility in Bethlehem. So the Magi worship. Herod wants to kill. The Jewish leaders are apathetic. What about Matthew, the fourth perspective? What is he trying to do in this passage? Well, as I said, he's writing predominantly to a Jewish audience. So he's got them in mind. So that is why he quotes Micah. And he says, I want to show you how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And there's amazing quotes that uh, every Jewish person would have had in their mind, or certainly the ones that knew the Old Testament well. For example, this is what Psalm 72 says about a king that was going to come. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river, the Euphrates that is, to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him with gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Isaiah, Psalm 72 says there's going to be a king and he's going to rule over all. And every other king is going to come and worship this king in the end. Isaiah 60 it becomes even more spectacular about the king that's going to come. It says this, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. You will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your lands, young camels of Midian and, and Ephra. All, this, all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Then you will know that I... The Lord am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. You see, if you're a Jew and you're in the first century and you know your Old Testament well, you're going, one day a king's going to come and all other kings are going to bow down and all the nations are going to come in and the whole world, in fact, it's not just Jerusalem is going to experience peace and prosperity, the whole world is going to. And treasures will be brought into the city of God, Jerusalem, gold and spices. And there's a famous moment in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 10 where it says the queen of Sheba, the richest person in the, on the planet at that time, comes to listen to Solomon, Israel's king. And what does she offer him? Gold and spices. And she praises Israel's king and she praises Israel's God. Matthew is saying, do you see this is happening? The king that is going to establish a kingdom that will be full of peace and prosperity for all people where all other kings would have to bow the knee, is here in your midst, not in power and glory, but in humility. And so Matthew teaches us that the kingdom of God is hidden. It's unspectacular. It's humble. It doesn't come with power and glory. In Matthew chapter 15, he's going to record a number of parables of Jesus, and he's going to say, it's a bit like a little yeast that works through the bread. You wouldn't notice it. He's going to say, uh, it's a bit like a farmer sowing a seed. And the seed does something. You wouldn't notice it. He's going to say, it's like fishermen catching fish. It starts small and hidden and no one notices. Be careful you don't miss it. Because you want something powerful and glorious and God to break in and fix all your problems. Ah, if you're after that kind of kingdom, that's a self-centered kingdom. That's not the kingdom of Jesus. He's not going to just do it 
because you want him to in that way. So whilst Herod is pouting and plotting and throwing his weight around in his earthly kingdom, the heavenly kingdom has landed on earth. In a small town outside Jerusalem, no one notices except some strange men from the east. Jesus' kingdom is upside down. Herod built his kingdom through aggression and cruelty. Jesus builds it through humility and love. And ultimately, the king is going to die. You see, what's interesting, at the end of the gospel, as we track our way through Matthew, if you've never read Matthew's gospel, I really commend you to read it. Start to finish. I'm giving you the second chapter here. As we read through Matthew's gospel, what happens is the religious leaders end up hating Jesus like Herod did. And so they hand him over to Pilate. They do collaborate with the Romans, like Herod had, and they kill him. Now, why had they done that? Because Jesus was saying, this is who I am. You've got to deal with me. And if he turns up the heat on them, they turn around and use Herod's tactic of the sword to kill him. They wanted him dead, so they to, and they wanted to establish their own kingdom. But again, the kingdom is hidden. The death wasn't a defeat. It was a victory. The kingdom would come through that death. Listen to these other verses that Matthew would have known. It's not just Daniel and Isaiah promising these amazing moments of a king. The king had to suffer. Listen to this. Listen to the word majesty in here, this king. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, Matthew knew more than the religious leaders. This was the conquering king, but the conquering king had to suffer to bring in his kingdom. His crown would be of thorns. His throne would be a cross. He wasn't here to live but to die. He wasn't here to take power but to lose power. He wasn't here to rule but to serve. For those who received his kingdom, they'd have to give up their kingdoms, give up their little projects. And here's the thing. Jesus will come again, it says, and then he will come with power. Then he's going to come and every king, it's what the Magi do here, everyone's going to do. He says every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow. He will come in that spectacular kingdom. But he's delaying. And he's delaying for a reason. He wants as many people from all the nations to join that kingdom. So it's hidden for now while people are given an opportunity to respond and to enter. But one day that kingdom that's hidden is going to be revealed. The king that was rejected and killed is going to be finally and fully exalted. That's the story of Jesus the king. And so the final perspective is yours. Whether you're here today as a Jesus follower or you're not, or you're not sure where you are or you used to be, what are you going to do? Are you going to reject him like Herod? Do you know, if you reject him like Herod, I respect you. You've made up your mind you decided what you think, good on you. At least you've made a decision. You're willing to come to a conclusion. But maybe you'll have apathy, too distracted, too nervous. Oh, what will it mean for me if I do this? I don't want to make the journey of investigation from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. I'm just going to stay in my own private little world. If that's you, I cannot respect your decision. It's too big. Reject him like Herod or fall down and worship. Don't be apathetic. 
and go, I'm too busy, I can't, what would it? No. If he really is king, who brings in joy and prosperity to our lives, he'll do it in yours. He might have to shake you up a bit, but he'll do it. I urge you, are you in or out with him? Are you falling down in worship or are you wanting to kill him? Have the integrity to make a decision. I urge you, give up your little kingdom. Enter his big one. So I urge you to respond like the Magi. Matthew's been saying, this is an amazing story, going back to Abraham, the blessing of all the nations, to Moses, to David, the king who's going to establish this kingdom that will never end. And all the nations one day are going to bring in their spices and their gold or their treasures. And I urge you, if you're a follower of Jesus today and Jesus is your king, continue to say, Jesus, what does it mean for me to give you my treasure? What do you hold most dear that you need to hold a bit looser? And say to him, Lord, you gave up everything. You were despised, rejected, you suffered. I, will I give up this thing? This, this, whatever it is. A Christian is not someone that's religious and knows their Bible. Remember, they can be very blind. A Christian is a follower of Jesus who's decided to say, everything that I could count as valuable in this world is not as valuable as him. My sport, my money, my family, my career, my possessions, my music, my hobbies, my reputation. Are you willing to give that up? My friendships, my relationships, my pride, are you willing to give that up? Our treasures, the things we hold dear, and fall down and say, if I have you, Jesus, I'll travel from far, far away just to get a glimpse and to worship. And by the way, final bit of application. The kingdom's hidden. So when you go, God, where are you? He might well just be there. He might well just be there. But he's not coming in power and glory and delivering you as you want. No, he didn't back then, did he? He's, he's, he's really his king, so he does it his way, not your way. You're, that's what it means to be a Christian. I have to give up the idea that I'm king and he should do it my way. God, I want you to do this. I cannot see you. Yeah, often it is hidden. And we'll get glimpses of it later. God will be very much at work in your life right now. It might be unseen. It might be unspectacular. Ask him to open your eyes. See what he's doing and how he's making you like him someone of royalty, uh, worthy to be an heir of the king of kings. So Matthew's retelling of Jesus' birth is that Israel's king is worshipped by the nations and rejected by the Jewish people. Will you worship him today? We're going to sing our final carol. It's called Angels from the Realms of Glory. It's about coming and worshipping the king. There's a slightly different version, but uh, Corey's going to sing it out. So why don't you stand? I'm going to pray. It's our final carol. And uh, we'll have a moment just to be silent and consider our response uh, to Jesus. Just take a moment to uh, just be still. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for the chance at the beginning of December to reflect again on what Christmas is all about. Lord, I pray for those of us that say we're Jesus followers, that we'd be inspired by these magi to come and give you everything again, our ambitions, our hopes, our desires, our dreams, and to submit them to you and allow you to be king in our lives. I pray for those of us, Lord, here today who are not sure what to do with you. Lord, give them the courage to take the journey of investigation from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see if there really is a king being born. A king who is more precious than the, you know, the pearl of great price. 
who can satisfy our hearts and deliver us from fear and ultimately deliver us from death itself. And Lord, fill us with wonder and awe as we sing this last carol. May you descend into our hearts and fill us afresh with your love and your power and your joy. And Lord, teach us what it is to give up our treasures. Not to hold anything more valuable than you, but to be willing to give it up for you. In your name.